Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. If you follow our series, you know we normally talk about technology and what it's doing to pretty much everything around us. In this episode, we want to talk more about what technology is doing to us, and specifically to our brains. I don't know about you, but I certainly, most days, okay, every day, the first thing I look at when I wake up is my phone. I look at it far too much during the day, when I'm walking, when I'm on the subway, even when I'm eating. It fills me with all sorts of information, entertainment, great conversation, but I also think it's changing my brain. And to help us better understand that, we're joined today by Dr. Morali Doraswamy from Duke University. Morali is a leading researcher, professor at Duke, also part of the uh, World Economic Forum at Davos, co-chairs a group that is looking at neuroscience and neurotechnology around the world, trying to help all of us, but help governments and large organizations as well, think about this exciting, but also challenging new future of the brain. Morali, welcome to RBC Disruptors. Thank you, absolute pleasure to be here. We've had some great conversations, Morali, about devices, about our own addictions and uh, all the good things we should be doing to deal with those addictions. But I wonder if I can first get you sharing your thoughts on techno-optimism or techno-pessimism, because the world is sort of falling into those two camps. I'm a huge techno-optimist. If we can fully master the mysteries of the brain, and if we can learn how to use technology wisely, especially technology tools such as artificial intelligence, I think it's going to be a game changer. This is probably going to be the biggest transformation of human lives ever in the history of humanity. I want to get uh, a bit of your thinking to share with our listeners about uh, your own upbringing, your own education, born in southern India in Chennai, educated at least initially in university there, and then you moved to uh, America and, and Duke University. I lived in India for a number of years in the 1990s and was always fascinated just with the kind of the, the mathematical abilities of Indians, but also the passion for math. I've never encountered a society like it that was so math geeky. Uh, give us a bit, a bit of your own background growing up in India and how you became interested in science generally and then neuroscience. Yes, I grew up in uh, South India. My two grandparents were very uh, well-known physicians primary care physician, one was and the other was a surgeon. So through them, I got my passion for medicine, well-being, and integrative medicine. But I've always been fascinated by brain science through a combination of reading some books that my grandparents had, as well as watching science fiction movies. And I've often imagined uh, scenarios where things that we only could dream about or saw in science fiction movies, what if they came true? But I then entered medical school in India, and I soon saw the huge suffering and toll that mental and neurological disorders take on people. Especially in India, uh, there's a major shortage of psychiatrists. Stigma is still very large, and India lacks the resources to care for the vast number of people with these conditions. And that's where I realized that newer forms of technology 
not to replace the human touch or human empathy, but if there is a way that we can leverage technology to fill in some of the existing gaps and supplement and maybe even enhance the human touch, then we can really help so many people uh, in India and around the world. And so that's what made me so passionate about the intersection of technology and the brain. You're a great uh, sci-fi consumer at a young age, uh, devotee of Asimov and uh, many of the other great, great writers. Curious when you first sort of realized that devices, digital devices specifically, were doing something to our brains? Well, there were, it was, it's continuous. I, I don't know if there's one single point. Um, of course, as a professor and a teacher, I could see in my classrooms, increasingly when I stood at the lantern, there would be a whole row of students only looking at their tablets and their phones and not looking at the blackboard. You know, I grew up in an era where there was no technology in the classroom and we were often like penalized or asked to leave the classroom if we were distracted in the slightest way. And then I think more recently I started seeing how distracted we have become, how our attention spans have changed. Even when we are driving, I started seeing in the uh, emergency room and the trauma centers a large number of cases of victims of trauma admitted oftentimes that they were distracted and using their mobile phones. And that brought home to me how major an effect mobile technology, especially smartphones, are having on human attention spans. Probably, you know, we think about drinking and driving as a big culprit, but I suspect that driving while distracted while using a mobile phone probably accounts for sixfold or sevenfold greater rate of motor vehicle uh, accidents and fatalities than drinking while driving. And there's something very different about digital devices. I mean, we, uh, those of us of a certain age grew up being told that TV would make us stupid. And maybe it did in some of our cases, but uh, it probably opened our eyes and our minds to all sorts of things. But uh, the interconnectivity of digital devices is much more powerful than TVs. You also talk about distractions, say, while driving. A, a, a phone is very different from a cup of coffee in your hand, which can also be a distraction. It does something to your mind, takes your attention away. As a neuroscientist, can you help us understand a bit about what that is doing, what these devices, I'm holding a smartphone right now, what these devices are doing to our brains? Our brain is uh, continuously adapting to new things we do in our life and rewiring itself. And there's two types of wiring in the brain. One we call soft wiring that can be molded and changed constantly based on the environment. And the second is hard wiring, which are longer term permanent changes in the brain. So on a short-term basis, when we use technology, what it's doing is, of course, um, there are different parts of the brain that are coming alive compared to when we don't use technology. And, and one example I'll give you is uh, the difference between semantic memory and procedural memory. Semantic memory is our permanently stored content of knowledge and information that we have to draw upon. So if someone asks you, what is the capital of uh, France? You know, you draw deep into your semantic memory to answer that. But now, with smartphone technology, we know that all of this information is readily available through a Google search. The only thing we need to know is how to search for it and then how to weed out bad information from good information. So that type of memory is called procedural memory because we're not actually storing the name of the capital of France, but we're just storing how to get 
to where that information is accessible. So the parts of our brain that were so reliant on semantic memory probably may be decaying a little bit because we're not using it as much. And the parts of our brain that are really exercised while we use our procedural memory are probably going to become far more prominent uh, as you know we become sort of merged with technology. Is that a problem? Because it, in a way, it just sounds like evolution and maybe is taking us to a better place as a, as a species. I think it's probably not a problem as long as the technology is always there to help us. Uh, because we are doomed to make the mistakes that we made in the past if we don't have a recollection of our past. So if we have a good recollection of what we did some time ago that was wrong, our navigation mistakes that were wrong, all of that past memory, that's what guides us to become better human beings in the future. So to some extent, we need a core amount of semantic knowledge. If we lose all of it, we'll keep making mistakes over and over again. And if for some reason technology goes down or is hacked or someone feeds you bad information, then you don't have any uh, inner knowledge to sort of override that technology. So it's, it's almost like you know an autopilot in a car. You need a safety mechanism. The safety mechanism here is our inner knowledge. So we need a core amount of knowledge, and we need to make sure everybody has that. It, we'll get to uh, a conversation about what we can do as, as individuals as, and, and then what we need to do collectively as communities and as a society to help navigate some of the interesting choices that are going to be coming, uh, coming at us. I want to ask you a bit more about the challenge challenges out there and what you're seeing as a researcher in terms of what digital devices, digital technology is doing to, uh, to our brains. Let me take you deeper on social media as a powerful channel of digital technology. It's changing the way we behave. This is not just a screen that uh, we're looking at. It's not even comparable to Google search because we're inserting, I would argue, we're inserting ourselves into, uh, into the device. It becomes part of our identity our relationships, uh, what we define as, or who we define as, as friends, what we qualify as sort of happy time, downtime, liberating time is often determined on social media. That's not a function the way a Google search or a, uh, a, a GPS function is. It's not a mechanical sure. trick of, uh, of digital technology. I can see how that's changing us behaviorally, neurologically, in our brains. What's What's social media doing to us? Well, we don't fully know, but what we know is that social media can be good or bad. For example, if it's an older person living alone and needs to be in touch with family members, with uh, relatives, with uh, loved ones, obviously then social media is enormously helpful. And if used wisely, I think it can bring us together and, and can be a tool to sort of bridge any social isolation gap that people have. And that can be very, very helpful for people who are isolated or living in sort of communities where it's hard to be in touch with a loved one. If, you're, for example, you're posted in a far-flung uh, coal field somewhere and you, you, know, you have to be in constant touch with your family. On the other hand, spending too much time on social media separates you from making real, deep, meaningful connections in everyday life. And that can be harmful. So there's this term that's used called alone together. So you can have 5,000 friends on Facebook, but none of them are your true friends who will come help you out if you're sick. Uh, so I think we need to be able to differentiate the two. The both are good. Um, what it's doing to our brain, we know that having deep, personal, meaningful connections in our life 
is very, very important for both psychological and physical well-being. A Harvard study that followed a group of college students over something like 40 years found that it's not blood pressure, it's not any of the tests that your doctor does that predicts how long you will live. It's the number of deep, meaningful connections you have, your social network. So that's why I tell people, yes, it's great to have Facebook and influencer type status if you're marketing something or promoting something, but don't mistake that for what brings to true well-being into your life. Make sure you have true, meaningful connections in your everyday life. That's such a great insight. We use the word community very loosely, uh, especially in conversations around digital communities. And I heard a great line from another Canadian who said, uh, a real community brings you chicken soup when you're sick. And I thought that nailed it in terms of what real communities do. And we as, as people love to be, we need to be part of communities. It's uh, just part of our nature, literally. How are our brains evolving, changing in terms of that sense of community, of relationship, when the relationship maybe isn't bringing a chicken soup when you're, when you're sick, but it's powerful in different ways. You can interact with strangers around the world. You can be part of bigger movements and maybe feel more self-esteem or more self-worth because of, uh, because of that. Like I said, it's positive or negative depending on how it's used. Um, can be a great tool for mobilizing people around a cause, like has happened with, you know, uh, revolutions that happened in countries. It can be a great tool for raising money, like let's say someone is sick and you want to crowdsource uh, fundraising. So it can be enormously good for that. It can be great for spreading a good cause. If you have a celebrity with 10 million followers, you want to raise awareness of mental illness, stigma, and perception. That's great, and that's what a foundation in India called the Live, Love, Laugh Foundation is doing, using the power of its founder uh, to raise awareness. On the other hand, people can misuse it uh, by spreading false news. It's very easy to create false news that looks like it's good news. It's very easy to empower fringe elements of society, to empower conspiracy theories uh, through Facebook, because the filtering mechanism is very weak. And so that's the danger of that. And I think what's important is the difference between you and I, who grew up in an era where there was no Facebook. So we had our formative years, the critical periods of childhood development where we were not exposed and we were not immersed in the social media. We're able to differentiate real friendships versus sort of social media friendships. Whereas the, the generation that grew up only immersed in social media may or may not be able to make those differences as well as you and I can. And that's why it's important to get out of the virtual world into the real world. You spend a lot of time looking at emerging technologies and talking with people around the world about uh, the good and the bad of those. I'm curious what you're seeing in terms of augmented technologies. By that I mean technologies that uh, add to our brain capacity. Lots of talk or speculation, I suppose it is, about our brains becoming supercomputers because of technologies that uh, people are, are developing. Is that just more sci-fi, or is there a reality or th the prospect of our brains being supercomputers in, in our lifetime? It's very real. It's already happening, uh, but perhaps not at the scale that uh, uh, people you know imagine. So let's take two things. Um, on the medical front, there are already a variety of computational devices that have been embedded into the human brain or uh, 
are being used as what's called as a brain-computer interface device. Either they're wearables on top of the brain uh, or uh, they're devices put into the brain. So some examples are cochlear implants to enhance hearing in people with some types of hearing loss. It communicates directly with the brain's auditory cortex. There are retinal telescopes that can be implanted in your retina that communicates directly with the nerves and sends signals uh, to the brain. There are devices now uh, that can be implanted in the brain to help paralyzed people um, communicate their thoughts and wirelessly type messages to loved ones because they're no longer able to use their fingertips. And, and there are also now uh, implanted devices to help Parkinson's patients with tremors. These are all computers that are implanted in the brain that are interacting with specific nerve cells and pathways uh, to either correct or um, uh, to provide something that's uh, missing. So there is a device um, that actually is a closed-loop treatment computer that's implanted into the brain of people with refractory hard-to-treat seizures. And that has a sensor that can detect when a seizure is about to occur in the brain, and then it sends a countering uh, impulse to completely quell that seizure and prevent that seizure from happening. So this is called the closed-loop implantable device. There are also artificial hippocampi being developed to enhance uh, memories, and this has already been done in mice, but it's not yet uh, come to the level of humans. If you think about human IQ, you know, human IQ has jumped by 30 to 40 points during the earlier part of the century due to better nutrition, better childcare, better pregnancies, uh, and, and, and a variety of uh, uh, social and nutritional improvements. But it's predicted that over the next uh, 100 years or so, we'll probably only see a jump of human IQ by three to four points, unless we then turn to augmented technologies. Uh, could we somehow have a mesh that grows with our brain right from pregnancy that gives us instant access to the internet without having to type anything? There are already such meshes that have been shown and tested in mice. You can put this mesh in a developing mouse's brain and it grows. The mesh grows with the nerve cells of the mouse's brain. Elon Musk's company, for example, Neuralink, is experimenting with a, a mesh that can allow the human brain to communicate with the internet. These are all early days, but I think that's where we're headed. It's amazing what lies on the horizon, but I also think about what lies within our heads right now and whether we should be focusing, it's not on improving the brain that we have rather than trying to augment it with, with these new technologies. Yes, very much so. I think the biggest scope for technologies, as I pointed out, is in one, helping people with mental and neurological diseases. Something like, uh, you know, one in three Canadians, something like three to 400 million people around the world have mental and neurological diseases. It's the leading cause of disability. It causes enormous work loss, productivity, and suffering. And I think that's the very first place where I think digital tools can be very useful to fill both treatment gaps and diagnosis gaps. And we're working uh, with the World Economic Forum, for example, on a framework to implement digital technologies in the most appropriate way to fill those gaps. Uh, I think technology can also be uh, uh, useful 
to sort of help us monitor ourselves, to understand our weaknesses and our biases. All of us have a variety of cognitive and behavioral biases and addictions. We can use a, uh, what's called as deep phenotyping. So wearables, our smartphone knows everything we do. It knows what restaurants we've visited, what uh, clothes we've shopped for, what items we have purchased, how much we have walked and moved on any given day, who we are calling. So it knows us. So from the smartphone, we can extract a variety of features that can tell us what are our behaviors that need improvement? What are our cognitive weaknesses and processes that need improvement? And I think that's an immediately achievable goal that will be enormously helpful. You started to touch on one of the great challenges to our society, which is how do we prioritize the problems that we go after? And I, I think big tech or the tech world more broadly is starting to realize as it reflects on the so-called digital revolution that the problems that maybe we solved over the last quarter century were not humanity's biggest problems. So, you know, we've optimized advertising. Uh, we've optimized the search for information. Terrific. I've got no qualm with that. But 25 years ago, I don't think those were on the top 10 list of challenges facing humanity. So good for those who figured them out. But uh, really, how do we use the, our collective brain power uh, to some, some greater good? And now as we think about these wonderful opportunities with neuroscience and uh, neurotechnology, how can we t maybe take a better approach and ensure that all the brainiacs, pardon the expression, but that, that you're, the, the world that you live in are sort of focused on these grander challenges that uh, will, will improve humanity and improve the planet? Yeah, so technology is a tool. It's up to us to decide how we use it. Who decides? Who's um, us? I think the people. I think we can use technology to democratize medical research, for example. So one of the limitations currently in brain research and mental health research is if each university does a study, they're limited by the small sample sizes. They may not be racially and ethnically diverse. The data may be locked in within the walls of that institution. And Healthcare does not happen when you go visit a doctor. Healthcare happens in between a doctor visit. So, you know, if you get two measurements, one every six months, that doesn't really tell you anything about the person's true health. And lastly, currently we know nothing about the social determinants of health. So could we use technology to create an open crowdsourced data sharing platform where let's say 100 million people with mental illnesses decide to sign on to this platform they voluntarily agree to share certain aspects of their daily lives, their mood fluctuations, their social issues on this particular platform. Then, all of a sudden, you'll have an enormous database that is truly representative. And then scientists in an open sort of data sharing manner can start to analyze and use deep learning algorithms to come up with insights that are really meaningful. But around any such framework ultimately you know the individual person has to own their own data and they have to decide how much they want to share how much they don't want to share and we have to make sure that the results uh, of the findings are you know the uh, are fully sort of shared with the community you've been a great advocate of open science what are some of the challenges that you're encountering in terms of well the biggest uh, challenge to open science is of course uh, patents intellectual property and and you know everybody that owns a study or runs a study wants to commercialize on the findings and make money off of it. Universities want to do it, researchers want to do it, companies want to do it. 
So how do you balance that with the need to sort of make the data available quickly um, to the general public so that others can replicate it, uh, others can sort of test it in different settings to make sure that this is not a fluke or not some kind of a uh, biased finding. Uh, and then how do you ensure that the value of those findings, you know, the community benefits from it. The people who contributed to the research right now get no benefit. You could be in a research study uh, where you shared data with a university or with a company for three years. The company will patent the findings, will come up with an amazing drug, but the individual participants will still have to pay a half million dollars then to get that drug when it comes out. So how, how do we go about those challenges in a kind of more thoughtful way? Well, the individual person has to own, all of us own our own data. That's the only way. And we decide if we want to give that data to a specific purpose. And we can even decide we want to monetize our own data. So can you set up a format where I agree to release my mental health data and share it for a year with a researcher at a university, but I'm going to charge the university for my data and the university has to agree, whatever comes out of it, has to agree to give that back to me at a certain price or whatever you and the university agree or the, you and the company agree. So that's one option. The other is, you know, each country has to develop a policy of how to use this kind of a data. Um, how do you value the inventions that come out of this data? Who does it belong to and how does the community benefit from it? I don't have the answer for it. Uh, but I think these are the kinds of issues that society has to decide if we want to scale research um, in an open fashion. Economic incentives are also very powerful in determining where those resources go. How can we better ensure that the incentives are towards collective goods, public good? You mentioned a number of diseases and disorders that might be better addressed than perhaps individual gain that might come through some of these tech advances. Yeah. It's very difficult uh, because it depends on the kind of uh, free market society you live in. So if you live in a very, very, very sort of pro-free market, anything goes kind of society like the US, um, then really uh, it would be like buying a painting. You could buy a Picasso reprint for $50 or you could buy a Picasso original for 100 million, whatever the market is willing to pay. And that's where we're headed. That's why healthcare is so expensive. That's why drugs are so expensive in the US. The other model, of course, is to say, I'm going to put a value on, on your product. And that's called value-based medicine and sort of, you know, a total free market approach. And then a collective group decides what's the value of the invention, what's the value of the product, what is the amount of pricing that's allowed. Uh, of course, free market people will say that's price controls and we're opposed to it. Uh, but on the other hand, if you don't have price controls, you're going to have runaway prices. So there's no alternative to it. A bank like RBC can come up with innovative financing mechanisms, but still, I, I think that's only going to be a temporary gap because then people still have to find a way to pay for those financing mechanisms. Well, this is going to take us in the 2020s into some fascinating and possibly dangerous territory where there may well be a cure for, for Alzheimer's or yes. Parkinson's, for instance, or new technologies that uh, multiply my IQ. Sure. And if I have the means to pay for those... Only the rich will get it. The poor won't get it. It'll worsen inequality. So there's going to be gene therapies. There are already about 100 gene therapy experiments being conducted in mice to alter personality traits, memory, cognition, eliminate diseases of the mind and brain. So 
if these therapies cost a million dollars, two million dollars, uh, only the rich can afford it, and that'll worsen inequality. And we're also developing ways of uh, predicting. Our, our own health out- outcomes through uh, life. So I may learn early on that uh, I've got no chance or I, I have a high chance of getting a, a, a disease, um, but I'm not gonna have the economic means right. to, uh, to deal with that. What's that gonna do to society when we know that we're kind of stuck in this caste from birth or a strata, a social stratum that uh, doesn't allow for progress to take us to, uh, to a different place? Yeah, it's a very dystopian uh, scenario. You know, there are science fiction movies like Divergent that have uh, predicted what will happen. I I don't have the right answer, but I think we need to guard against genetically-based discrimination. It's going to be very important. We need to make sure that employers don't discriminate, society doesn't discriminate. Um, There's not a good way other than enforcing very strict laws and very strict punishments to, to, to make sure of that because Right now, genetic data um, is not well regulated. There are dozens of at-home testing companies where you can just uh, you know, send a swab of your cheek to a company and they mail you a genetic results so that you can exercise better or eat better or, or look at your risk for a variety of diseases. But then most people who sign these uh, uh, privacy disclosure forms don't even read it. They're 20-page forms, and they just click agree, thinking nothing's going to happen. But, you know, those databases have all your deep personal information. You don't know how it's going to come back to hurt you in the future. The world of neuroscience and research has, has also transformed. You just think to you, uh, the world in which you grew up and you left India to go to America uh, and how different it is today, where other countries, India included, are doing fantastic work. China is quickly becoming a world leader in neuroscience. How is that changing? the world of uh, research? Well, it's, I think it's changing it in a good way because you can't learn about the brain only by studying white brains. So far, the biggest brain science studies have been in Western populations in North America and Europe because they've had the resources to fund uh, these kinds of experiments. I, I'm actually happy now that India, China, and other countries have undertaken large brain science projects these are large population-based studies to look at the correlations between genetics and various brain and mental health diseases, as well as studies looking at uh, brain development in children, etc. because we'll learn more about the brain by studying a variety of different uh, cultures. What are we learning differently? What do we know that we didn't know because of that diversity? We all know about genetics, but there is a field of genetics that many people don't know about called epigenetics. Epigenetics is the interaction between lifestyle and what you're born with. So your lifestyle can turn on or turn off different genes. So the diet in China is different, the diet in India is different. So two people can be born with the same set of genes, but in India, if they eat a curry diet versus they eat a Western diet that's saturated in uh, high fats, how does that differentially influence your risk for Alzheimer's? The same genes that pose an increased risk for Alzheimer's in Western societies may be doing something different in tropical countries. So there are studies now show that the APOE gene that increases the risk for Alzheimer's in the West actually serves a purpose to protect against infections in the developing countries. And by learning that information, uh, I think we can gather new insights about you know different mechanisms at play in human health. So that's very important. The second is, the rates of Alzheimer's seem to be a little lower in India than they are in the West. Why is that? Is that because 
of genetics? Or is that because of their lifestyle? There are a lot of vegetarians, a lot of people eating curry. Is there something in curry that's protective for the brain? We don't know. But studying those kind of factors uh, can yield insights both ways. We can learn from studies in the East and see what the West can do better and vice versa. So I've just realized I've not been uh, really on my phone, on Twitter, on email, on other social channels in about four hours. And I think I feel better for awesome. that. Awesome. <laughs> what, um, and we're having a great conversation. And, and we're having a great conversation. Brain and making us think. Yes, no, absolutely. So what, what else should we all be thinking about and doing in our daily lives to improve our brains? So I'm a big fan of uh, two things. One is... Um, nature and making sure I spend time outdoors. So my rule is um, try not to sit at your desk for more than an hour at a time, 20 minutes if possible, but if not an hour at a time, try to take a break, go to the nearest exit, get some fresh air. If you have to walk to a coffee shop, whatever, that's one. And of course, I try to go for a walk or a run, you know, several times a week and try to meditate for at least 20 minutes or so a day, because I think that's very good for the brain. And I think it's also very good to at least try to form, just engage in a deep, meaningful conversation at least once a day with someone you love, a close friend, and not just sort of spend all your time having virtual conversations through Skype or WebEx or uh, social media. And often those conversations are best done walking or, yes. or moving. Why, why is that? What does that do to the brain? Well, so when you walk at a pace that is just right, it allows you to think and talk. You really, um, uh, there's a part of your brain that's coming alive called the default mode network. The default mode network is the part of your brain that's creative, that really cross-links many different ideas and parts of your mind, and allows you to go from a task-oriented way of thinking to a much more introspective, uh, way of thinking that's much more creative and much more productive. And many societies believe, uh, and this is why so many emphasize walking, not just for the uh, the, the physical aspect of it, but for the um, mental but aspect. the mental aspect of it, because of the repetitive yes. nature of it. There's some monasteries where there'll be daily rituals of scrubbing yes. uh, floors, or not just to keep the floors clean, but right. to help one contemplate sure. that we our brain works differently when we are actually repeating Correct. something physically. Why is that? Yeah, rituals help in uh, two ways. One is uh, rituals are very protective against stress and help build resilience. That's why you see uh, famous tennis players like Nadal have the same ritual over and over again when they've lost a point. The ritual helps them get back into winning the next point and uh, overcoming that stress. Uh, Rituals also calm the brain down in some ways and unlock uh, this creativity and contemplative nature. Tell us a bit more about contemplating. We've had some previous conversations about the value of contemplation. It's uh, something that has been sadly lost in a lot of, uh, I don't want to say Western society, digital society. We just don't spend that time thinking, whether it's meditating or just walking and thinking. I, I understand what that's doing to us as people. I'm curious what that is also doing to our brain. Well, we are um, so overscheduled that we are constantly in a task-oriented mode. So either emails or meetings or projects, that's all our brain is focusing on. Um, The contemplative mode of the brain requires time set aside. 
idle time essentially, and then it activates a part of the brain called the default mode network. And to me, this is probably the most important network in the brain because it comes alive when you're idle, when you're daydreaming, when you're just taking a walk in the park, when you're just thinking deeply about very important things. And it's the network that allows you to unlock solutions to deep problems, both in your life and in society. So walk, talk, daydream, eat better. What else should I do today? Well, uh, make deep connections and express gratitude to others. It's been a great conversation, Morali. Thank you so much for uh, joining us for RBC Disruptors. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to RBC Disruptors. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation using the hashtag RBC Disruptors.